Welcome to Politically Speaking. This is Holyrood Magazine's new podcast, and it's coming to you from lockdown. They say a week is a long time in politics, but bear with us while myself and one of my journalists, Liam Kirkcaldy, try and condense the serious stuff and keep the nonsense in too. I mean, what do you think about that one, Mandy? Is it, is it reasonable to drive 30 miles in a car with a four-year-old and someone that you know has coronavirus to test that you can see properly? Is that, is that medical advice, Mandy Rhodes? I mean, so when we ask the politician if their pets has got any special tricks and a councillor says that a hen lays eggs, that just that is not a special trick. The story of the last couple of years has been the Scottish Tories watching in horror as the UK Conservatives make their job harder and harder and harder. Yeah, I do think people are a bit more... It's almost like they've got permission at the moment to say, I feel anxious, I feel scared, I feel worried. And there's so much to feel anxious and scared and worried about. No, I, I said I wasn't a good political journalist. <laughs> yeah, I think I've got a P45 to go and write. <laughs> Welcome to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast brought to you from the editorial team of the award-winning Holyrood magazine. Whether you're more interested in what politicians do to relax than what they actually do in the parliament, this is the podcast where you'll get the full skinny on politics, policy and pure nonsense. Join me, Mandy Rhodes, editor of Holyrood, along with Liam Crocodi, one of my award-winning writers, along with the odd politician as we chew the political fat and spit it out onto the page of the forthcoming issue of Hollywood magazine. Okay, so first up this week we have Good Week, Bad Week. That's our regular section of the magazine where we chart the changing fortunes of political players in Scotland and beyond. Mandy, I've really just put Good Week and Bad Week together this week because I feel like there's only one big story at the moment. I'm sure you is can it? guess what it is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it is, of course, the Dominic Cummings story. Um, ah. Yeah, I thought we actually, I've got Good Week here for. Um, Douglas Ross, the former Scotland Office Minister and Murray MP, who we, we talk about quite a lot on this podcast, actually. <laughs> He's become a regular fixture. Yeah, so I've got a good week for him because he showed some initiative and resigned from the Scotland Office because he was offended by the story. I'm sure everyone knows it by now, but Dominic Cummings, uh, what, in my opinion, breached lockdown rules by driving hundreds of miles to Durham. Um, because he felt that the idea that him and his wife having coronavirus meant that they would be unable to look after a four-year-old child and that those were exceptional circumstances. Douglas Ross took this quite badly. Um, He he resigned, in fact. He said, while the intentions may have been well-meaning, the reaction to this news shows that Mr Cummings' interpretation of the government advice was not shared by the vast majority of people who have done as the government asked. I have constituents who didn't get to say goodbye to loved ones, families who could not mourn together, people who didn't visit sick relatives because they followed the guidance of the government. I cannot, in good faith, tell them they were all wrong and one senior advisor to the government was right. I mean, what do you think about that one, Mandy? Is it it reasonable to drive 30 miles in a car with a four-year-old and someone that you know has coronavirus to test that you can see properly? Is that that medical advice, Mandy Rhodes? Well, as you know, Liam, I'm a person of... uh good rational thinking and I think we discussed it and you said it's a bit like throwing a flamethrower in a boiler to see whether or not the gas is working. Um, I mean my view was what kind of man does actually strap a four-year-old child into a car which starts to feel a little bit like a an incubator of germs when you've got a wife who is ill and you drive that length of time um, to get to a, a spare house that your father happens to have on his farm. I think Everybody 
saw that as a bad action, apart from Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings, and some of the government who decided to stand up and act like sock puppets and basically support Dominic Cummings. Douglas Ross was just incredibly honourable, I think, in his actions in terms of resigning as a junior minister from the Scotland office. In fact, one um, Scottish Conservative uh, MSP who will remain nameless texts me to say, Douglas Ross has more balls than the rest of us put together. <laughs> and I'm not saying that that was a woman MSP, but, you know, take your pick. Um, it also made me wonder, though, is it about me? I know it's not always about me. It is, it's often about you, isn't it, Mandy? It does feel like <laughs> But obviously, I had just interviewed Douglas Ross. We just put him on the front cover of the magazine, and days later, he resigns. Mm. Well, I have form in this, because when I interviewed Danny Alexander, remember him? Lib Dem mm -hmm. in the coalition with I the Tories. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he was made Scottish Secretary. I interviewed him. Magazine uh, went to print on the Thursday, came out on the Monday, but he'd already resigned on the Saturday. Yeah, it was about so, a week after this, this magazine came out, we had to stick a former through a Scotland office minister <laughs> in this case. I think some people are suggesting that I should definitely interview Alistair Jack soon. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe not fans. Well, I think that the implication is there. I suppose that the background to this is that Douglas Ross will have been getting hundreds and hundreds of emails from constituents. You know, it's a lot easier to convince people that looking after a child when you're sick is impossible if they haven't already done that themselves. And there will be thousands of families across the country who are well aware of what it's like to look after a small child when you're very ill, and they did it anyway. I think that's the issue, that Dominic Cummings, uh, who's currency in government. I remember he's an unelected special advisor to Boris Johnson and was the architect behind um, the Brexit vote, if you like. His whole currency is about understanding the public mood and being a man of the people. And he basically argued that his very normal circumstances were exceptional, and they you know, weren't. The press conference was good, though, wasn't it? <laughs> Oh, God. He was sitting in front of a dog grooming table. <laughs> he looked he looked like Skeletor had been put on Gardener's World. Oh, it was just... And, the and shirt you know, doesn't help. You know, the giant oh, shirts. Well, but this is a man that normally dresses, um, well, like a drug dealer, really. And, um, and like a he, hipster drug dealer. <laughs> I, I thought the delay... So he was half an hour late for his own press conference. I assumed that was because he was being taught how to tie a tie. But, of course, he came out in a very crushed linen um, shirt. And he always manages to not have it tucked in. Is it, it, Boris Johnson's the same. Why are, they, why are their shirts never tucked into their trousers? I think it's probably a means of recognising each other, um, like a uniform, you, you know? Yeah. And then that's the, yeah, the other bit, I suppose, is that Douglas Ross resigned. You saw um, quite a few Scottish Tories backed that decision. Um, I think Adam Tompkins, actually, he went further. He, he called for, for uh, the advisor to be sacked. But the whole time mm. throughout this, you didn't hear a lot from Jackson Carlaw. I mean, he did, he did um, briefly react to the original statement from Douglas Ross, but it was effectively just to say, this is a difficult situation for many, and people will arrive at different judgments. I mean, that is, that's almost true of all situations, really, except this one, really, because most people probably think the same thing on the, on the Dominic Cummings story. I think the difficulty for Jackson in all of this is he didn't show leadership 
or authority and was basically seen coming behind public opinion and after a number of his own MSPs had said things quite publicly. I mean, almost immediately when Douglas Ross put out his resignation letter, Donald Cameron, who sits in Jackson's shadow cabinet, um, commended him for that. We then saw the public, the opinion polls just um, reacting really, really badly to Dominic Cummings. And I think uh, I think Boris Johnson's approval ratings are now minus one. Yeah, that's the, is... sort of, uh, the story of the last couple of years has been the Scottish Tories watching in horror as the UK Conservatives make their job harder and harder and harder. And I guess yeah. that's really what they're... I mean, it's also a, an election looming for the Scottish Tories, and they will not be thanking the UK party for putting them in this position so close to... A, well, if the election goes ahead, of course. Well, that's interesting because we had an opinion poll ourselves of um, MSPs this week, which showed that I think about almost half... Uh, oh, 51% of MSPs believe that the election should go ahead in May next year and about 40% think it shouldn't and about 7%, I think it was, supported the idea of electronic voting. Hmm. But you're right. I mean, at this particular juncture, the Scottish Conservatives and Jackson Carlow do not need the UK party to cause them these problems. And I think everybody is left, well, gobsmacked really, as to why... Uh, an unelected advisor has been given such support. Mm-hmm. Do you think? I mean, do you think Jackson Carlow is coming under pressure internally from his from his party? I can imagine there'll be some voices in there that'll be pretty angry with him for not doing more to, to stand up on this issue. I think that's right, and I, I suppose even when Jackson did come out, it was almost a sort of polite apology. It was a polite request that if he was in the position that Dominic Cummings was in, then he would probably consider his position. Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. exactly angry, is it? He said he said he passed on his views to Downing Street. So I suppose in that case, we just have to hope that Dominic Cummings took his call. But how do you pass on something to a street? Well, I'm not entirely. I mean, he didn't really have a view to pass on in the first place. His view in the first place was that he wasn't really sure. Does it actually mean that he phoned number 10 and spoke to the Prime Minister? Or does it just mean that he left a message on an answer machine? (laughs) I think, do you know, the other interesting bit about all of that was every politician that came out, government ministers supporting Dominic Cummings, had to admit that they'd never actually spoken or met Dominic Cummings. Yeah, I was quite surprised by that, to be honest. I thought, I mean, I especially thought if you're in the Scotland office, you're kind of had some interaction with him at some point, but I don't even think Douglas Ross had. No, I, although we're led to believe that apparently Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson both phoned him. <laughs> well, there was also a newspaper referring to him as Mr. Nobody with an unattributed source, which you oh. can only assume goes to goes straight from Dominic Cummings. How to? Well, I think that's how he feels about us all. So we put the magazine to bed last night, Liam. As ever, during lockdown, it does feel quite strange that we're not all in the office together doing that. But um, really strong magazine that will be published on Monday um, with a lot of interesting interviews and articles. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in it. It's my favourite ever uh, Politicians and Their Pets this week, actually. There's a huge number. It's the first time we've featured a peacock in Politicians and Their Pets. There's also obviously a lot more heavy stuff as a central feature on mental health. I think maybe first we should talk about your column. Um, that's quite, it's quite a personal one this time. 
Yeah, I do just want to just return to politicians oh, and sorry. their pets. sorry, I thought I could sneak through the peacock bit. I honestly <laughs> thought we could just touch on it and then we could move on, but you want to talk about it, don't you? I mean, so when we ask the politician if their pets has got any special tricks and a councillor says that a hen lays eggs, <laughs> that, is just, that is not a special trick. But anyway, no, going a, on to the... There's a magic in nature, isn't there? I mean, there's no wonder... <laughs> No, listen, it'd be a special trick if you did it. But a hen. <laughs> anyway. Um, your column. So, we we're going to talk yeah, about your column. column. I do feel at the end of lockdown, we'll look back on the columns and they've all been quite grim to mm. sit and write. But I wanted to at least start with, I mean, clearly I am very angry about the whole coming saga and that comes over in the column. But I wanted to at least start with something that's felt quite uplifting, strangely. Having my son, who's 22, um, forced into lockdown with his parents could have been just a, a recipe for disaster in our house. And it's been really lovely. And it's given us, I suppose, a unique um, opportunity just to see him develop into the adult that he now is. Um, so it's been brilliant just having amazing political conversations with him. But also the sadness of watching him in see in real time the whole degradation of politics um, over the last week with Dominic Cummings and the responses by um, political leaders. I mean, for, for me, that's been quite sad watching him and knowing that as a generation, that group that are going to be so affected by this pandemic and what it means for their futures, that for him, politics has meant that you can't trust what political leaders say mm. and I, I I've just found that really quite sad yeah it's just it's an age where um you know it can have a huge effect on the politics of the rest of your life you know if you like my generation for example I was about I was in my early 20s when the financial crisis hit um when Lehman Brothers collapsed and you could see that had a whole effect across a, a generation of young people it delayed their careers or put them backwards it made things much harder I think there's a generation after that that are probably going to be marked by environmental catastrophe and pandemic. And I suppose your son almost falls into that group a little bit. Yeah, he does. I, I mean, he sees the power of politics. And I think that, um, I suppose for me, it's been quite strange that, you know, all day we're talking about politics and then I go home and uh, all night we're talking about politics. But he's invigorated by it. But I think he has an early taste of the cynicism that many of us might feel sometimes about politics. Would you say having him around has helped keep you um, a bit more positive? Has it, has it been good for your mental health, would you say? Um, I just found it really joyful. Mm. And, I, you know, obviously I would not have wished these circumstances on anybody, but I just feel, you know, when he left home to go to university, like all parents, I was quite glad to see the back of him at that stage, having gone through all the turbulent teenage <laughs> years. And and then, you know, in between times when they're home during the summer holidays or whatever, like many others, he was out working. So I just never really saw him. And this has been an extended period where, myself and, and my husband have spent a lot of really enforced time with him and it's just been it's been really lovely and, and actually he he's behaved impeccably around the lockdown and and he's in, 
enjoyed those conversations, he says, with us as well. I think he has probably spent more time getting to know us as well, because in other times he just, he'd be off with his friends and we're just his mum and dad. So, yeah, I think from my mental health, it's probably been a good thing. When he went off to university, did you tell him that you were glad to see the back of him? <laughs> he probably wouldn't have listened. The door was slammed as he went out the door. Meanwhile, it would have been the same all around, I suppose. Maybe everyone needed a short break. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I think the thing, and I, I say this in the column, and I feel it, you know, I, God, I'm in my 50s, and I feel it when I go home and see my mum, that your parents' view of you is sort of set in aspect at the point that you left, which is often as a sort of angry-ish 17 or 18-year-old. So I just, yeah, I think it's been an interesting time. And, you know, in the magazine this week, we've got an article about a kind of boomerang generation, those kids that have been forced to, to, to abandon plans to go to university or to go away for work or whatever. So parents and children, uh, young adults are back living together. Mm. Yeah, that's, that comes alongside a, a kind of central section on MSPs' mental health. We asked, um, we asked MSPs to send in anonymous accounts of how they've been coping with lockdown. And there's I suppose it's fair to say that there's quite a big range of experiences. Some have actually found it quite positive. Some um, some yeah. came back saying that it's actually helped them in some ways. They're not having to travel to Edinburgh quite as much. They're maybe getting a bit more time with, with friends and family, and I think probably getting to exercise a bit more. Others are finding it much harder. Um, I've got a few accounts here. I don't know if you'd like to hear any of them. Um, they they yeah. don't have names against them, obviously, because I think that's quite a good way of allowing people to be a bit more honest. Uh, one said... I actually feel better than ever. I've been getting plenty of exercise and I've been cycling more than ever, probably more than the level I was at when I was a teenager. It's been quite liberating. Another said, I live alone and I'm finding it tougher as the weeks go on. One said, as I live alone, I sometimes feel a bit isolated and have to have a bit of a chat with people on the telly, but then I remember it's not real. Another, um, whilst I wouldn't say my overall mental health has suffered, I've definitely at various times felt anxious, angry, worried, sad, and a bit vulnerable. Sometimes all of those mm. things at once. And I guess that's something that you, it's one thing I've learned, actually, the, the, the more that I've worked in, in political journalism, the first thing that struck me was that you, you realize these are real people. That, you know, yeah. they're, not just, they're not just people on TV that you assume are pretty much invulnerable. We've done a few features on this in the past. And, you know, there was a time, I remember when, when Annie Wells, the, the Tory MSP, was... She was getting death threats and she was having to get the police to tell her to change her route to work. And you can see the impact that has on someone. She talked about that very honestly, uh, very openly. Alex Cole Hamilton, too, in the past has talked about what it's like when his kids come home from school and the kids in the playground are saying, you know, you're, you're talking about his dad, about him, about their dad. Yeah. We also had um, Ruth Davidson and Jamie Green have actually written pieces um, with their names against them in this issue as well. I think um, what what interested me, Liam, was that we we sent out three or four questions to the MSPs, and they they had the choice of answering anonymously. Almost all of them said when they were asked had their mental health been affected by the lockdown, almost all of them said no, but then went on to describe things that clearly was at uh, reverse yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it was interesting that the, your initial reaction to say, oh, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. But then when you started to get into a bit more detail, almost all of them had had their mental health affected in some way. I think what was interesting about Ruth's piece, and Ruth has written before or talked before about uh, her mental health issues in the past, people are taking 
ask steps to protect themselves so that they know that this could affect their mental health, the lockdown, and what they're doing is taking um, preventative action. So people talking about exercise, talking about not drinking as much. Um, you know, it, it was fascinating just once you started to dig down into that understanding that everyone knows that actually this has the potential to harm them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in the Ruth Davidson piece, it's almost like she has a plan ready to go for these sort of situations. She knows she knows the red flags yep. for you know how things might become harder, and so she she yep. sets a kind of plan into action as soon as lockdown began. Yeah, and with Jamie Green, um, you know, he came to to me came back to me with all his responses to our questions and said that he would be he would prefer not to be anonymous mm. that um he feels that we should not be frightened of expressing our issues around this this area mm. it's a really good piece actually that and the ruth davidson one are really really strong pieces they write well as well actually yeah I, well of course ruth was a journalist <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I also love the front cover. I think we've just we've managed to, you know, what Amy, our designer, has done with that. Just using some of the selective quotes, it's really powerful. Mm. And then the the standalone interview is uh, with with Claire Hockey. I think you've got a, a part of that that you're going to play to us. Yeah. So Claire Hockey is the mental health minister, um, and you know she talks at the beginning of the interview very generally about how people are feeling about lockdown and how that is affecting their mental health. But we went into a lot of detail um, about the tragedy that hit her family um, last July when her 20-year-old uh, son, Charlie, was found dead in a hostel in Amsterdam. He'd gone there on holiday with some former school friends. And basically, she had to deal with the nightmare that almost any parent just never wants to have to think about. Um, and it was a really, it was a hard interview to do, um, but I'd spoken to Claire previously and, and said that if we were going to talk about resilience and mental health and how people get through things that they can't imagine they'd ever have to deal with, then would she be happy talking about um, just really how she coped? So it's, it's a pretty emotional interview. Yeah. So the first question that I asked Claire was how she felt as mental health minister that the rest of the country are dealing with this pandemic and the lockdown and whether actually it's making us all talk a bit more. Yeah, I do think people are a bit more, it's almost like they've got permission at the moment to say, I feel anxious, I feel scared, I feel worried. And there's so much to feel anxious and scared and worried about, whether that be the virus itself, the effect it's having on, on the economy, people's finances, whether they're able to afford to, to heat and eat their houses and look after their children and so on. So, and dealing with the, which will inevitably, I'm sure for parents, be a really challenging time, having their, their children home all the time, whether yeah. it be from nursery or schools. I'm lucky I'm past that stage, but that must be really, really difficult, particularly if you're in, a, in a, a flat or a tenement and you can't go out. How do you explain to a wee one that they can't go out and then perhaps how they are feeling at different stages in life? You know, I'm thinking of my son, 22, and I'm, I keep sort of saying to him, are you okay, are you okay? To the point where he just tells me shit. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably quite normal at that age. <laughs> so that's, that, you know, that's probably a good sign, Mandy. 
I think it must be it must be really challenging with 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 little children who don't understand. It's actually listening um, on to Radio Scotland was driving into Parliament today, and they were talking about the effect on on children and phone in and tell us it's called K phone yeah, and tell us what things are. And uh, they were they had done a small piece on children with autism. And the, the particular challenges that parents are, are facing with children with autism just now who are out of the routine and, and who I find it really difficult to self-regulate because the, their usual outlets, park, friends, groups, whatever school, just the structure of school, has gone. So there are really there are real challenges for for parents of uh, children who are on that sort of spectrum. I think it's your challenges for everyone. Yeah. We're all, I think we're all scared. Yeah. We're all worried. Um, anyone who says that they're not, <laughs> you think, why not? Um, I, I doubt there's anyone now who doesn't know someone who hasn't had COVID or knows of someone or who's related to someone or who, is, who has sadly passed from, from, from the virus. So it's touched all of our lives. Do you think that we'll come out of this I mean, I'm conscious that even with my staff, I would normally protect them from things, but I'm probably sharing more than I would normally share. Do you think we're going to come out with different relationships? I hope so. I hope that we get the um, f from this, that, that we come out of this with a, a different type of society, with a different type of, of, of environment and atmosphere at work. You know, you hear of, of of people who hadn't know who their neighbours were because they, they just didn't see them. Who now are more connected with their communities. Um, we, I think, are realising the things that are really important to us because we're missing those so contact with family, contact with friends, being able to hug someone. Yeah. You know, even just being able to touch someone when they're distressed or or you're distressed, who's who's not within your family household is you know those those are things that we I think we really took for granted yeah. um, getting out and about just being able to get out and about and do things I, I, I know we you know and from today mm -hmm. obviously the, the, the once a day exercise uh, guidance has, has changed and I hope that that makes a difference to people being able to just have that little bit more freedom and because it was really limiting. Yeah. You were having to choose, do I go for a walk or do I go for a run or a bike ride yeah. or whatever. And I think people have, have in general been really, really good at following that guidance. So hopefully this will relieve a wee bit of that pressure, particularly when we have good weather and you've got kids and, and you don't have access to them. I mean, do you think, obviously you're saying that things had changed by before we got to this point and people were talking about mental health, but the, the consequence of that is a lot more people requiring support. Um, what do you think the consequences are going to be coming out of this? Well, you know, we, we're trying to prepare as best we can to ensure that there are services there for people when they, when, when they need them. There are still services ongoing. The NHS is open. Mental health services are still open. So we've adapted a lot of those services because we can't we can't provide them in the traditional way that, that we were before before lockdown. So we've invested in um, um, more digital and uh, telephone services. So the NHS 24 hub and um, 
computerised CBT and we've expanded the Distress Brief Intervention Service so that people can access that service quick and we've expanded that right across the country because before there, was, there were four pilot sites um, so it is a, it's, it's a challenge to ensure that the services are there right from people being able to feel that they're able to, to offload to those closest to them and, and just or, or to friends or to other family but also services there for people at all levels of, of, uh, of mental distress distress right through to someone who has mental illness. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you know, as a, a, a nurse who to mental health, it's that one area where relationships and face-to-face -face probably matter more than any mm -hmm. other. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, just with a nursing hat, uh -huh. what would you say the issues uh -huh. might be? I mean, I, we, we, we're already hearing that people are feeling more anxious, they feel more distressed and they're more worried. So I think those, those are, those are the, the, the big issues yeah. at the moment. Um, isolation, no doubt, will play a, a part in how people are feeling. Um, and perhaps people who had access more to face-to-face -face services that aren't there anymore are having to adapt around about those, as, as are staff. Mm -hmm. um, so we're looking at trying to trying to adapt those services so that you know you might not physically be in the room with someone but attend anywhere near me mm -hmm. is getting used much more in primary care and, and, and in mental health services so that you can you, you might not physically be in the room with someone but you can you can see them mm -hmm. um, and, and a lot of a lot of the uh, mental health assessment is about looking at someone not just listening to them but watching them observing how they are so so being able to see someone yet yeah, is it can be important in, in in providing services but so can a lot of the um, telephone counseling yeah. and so on we we um last week a uh, announced uh, additional funding for relationship counselling through the SPARC mm -hmm. um, because it's a concern obviously people living together 24-7 yeah. often that are not in the same house 24-7 can have an impact on relationships so we're trying to look at, 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 at mental health in the round not not only at people who are mentally ill but about supporting people and helping them to, to cope with difficulties that they're in. Yeah, I mean prevention, I guess. Preven yeah, yeah, absolutely. Prevention and early intervention uh -huh. are, are, are really, really important and and giving people the opportunity to, to, to talk yeah. and permission to talk. So, let's talk about resilience and everything. Let's talk about what happened with Charlie. Mm -hmm. So, what happened last year was the nightmare we all kind of wait for, I suppose. Yeah. Can you talk me through just even getting that call? So it was a Saturday, Charlie had gone to Amsterdam with his friends on the Thursday. He'd been, that was the third time he'd been there. Were um, you worried about it or just in the normal fashion? With... Um, actually that time I wasn't worried, it's the only time I've not worried that he's been away. Right. Um, which I beat myself up for sometimes. Um, so he went away on the Thursday. He'd been away in the May with uni friends. He went with school friends. It was kids that I knew for, you know, yeah. he'd gone through primary school with. And he was due back on the Monday. So on the Saturday, it was uh, the Merchant City Festival in Glasgow. Mm -hmm. So we thought, right, we'll go into town, we'll go and have a drink, have something to eat. 
yeah. you know, and, and soak up the atmosphere. Um, so we couldn't get anywhere near Merchant City because it was just how it was behaving. Went up to the other end of Glasgow, sat down in a bar, we'd got a pint each, um, and the, the, my phone went and it was my youngest son, Michael, messaging me saying, eh, can I have the leftover Chinese that's in the fridge? And <laughs> I was like, I messaged back and went, yeah, go for your life. And then about two minutes later the phone went and it was him again and I thought, his phone to say, oh, I can't see it, how long do I microwave it for, or blah, yeah, blah, blah. Yeah. And he said, Mum, the police are here, um, they need to speak to you. And, you know, alarm bells didn't go off because, like, you know, if there's a major incident in Rutherglen, the police will let me know. Uh -huh. Do you know, I've got a really yeah. good relationship with local cop. And they asked me where we were. And they said, we need to speak to you. And I said, what's wrong? What's wrong? Um, and they said, I can't tell you on the phone. And uh, I immediately said, is it my son? And they said, yes, um, we'll come and meet you. So they asked me where we were. So that was probably one of the longest 20, 25 minutes of my life waiting on them. My oldest son was in town, so I'd phoned him in a panic, saying, you know, something's happened to child. And then, about but I'll let you know when I, when I know. And about five minutes later, he messaged me back saying Michael's in the police car with him. So at that point, you start um, bargaining with yourself. With yourself, that um, you know, let it just be. He's been in an accident. Um, he's been arrested. Uh, you know, he's, he's he's unconscious in hospital. You know, all of those things. All of those things. Just let it be that. Let it be that. Um, and it didn't, I'd, it didn't really cross my mind that he was dead. Do you know, I did, it was somewhere that I wasn't going to go at that point in time. Were you expressing any of that at all? Yeah, the two of us were outside because it, it, I'd literally had a sip of this beer when yeah. the phone went. So the two of us just left. Just they, God knows what they thought these people <laughs> just wandered. Uh, so we were pacing up and down Bath Street waiting on, on the police car arriving. Um, they arrived, they got us in the car and they told us that the child was dead. Um, and my world fell apart. Yeah. I mean, I, because we've all been almost there uh -huh. and uh, done all that bargaining uh -huh. as well. And, and, and what, can you remember just even what was going through your mind or what you and Paul um, Well, I suppose I, it was shock more than anything else. I don't think I really felt anything. Paul was distraught. He was yeah. he was absolutely just broke down. Um, and Michael was in the middle of the police car and he just pulled his t-shirt up over his, over his face and cried. So in the car he obviously hadn't said He it. didn't know. And after, uh, when we asked him after, because the police wouldn't tell him, and he said, and I said, why, you know, why did you come? And he says, well, they said to me you can come. And he says, I thought, oh, Charlie's in big trouble. Oh my God, I better go and find out what it is. Do you know, like, just thinking. Um, so they then took us down to where our oldest son was, because he was in town with his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Saturday afternoon, and we then all went home. Got a cab and all went home. Mm -hmm. um, and at that point, they couldn't really tell us anything. They didn't really know. They just had run through Interpol. Uh -huh. um, so we went home, and I phoned my mum and dad, and got them to come round and told them. And then, obviously, then news cascaded. Mm -hmm. 
through the family, but we still didn't know what really what had happened. Mm -hmm. They couldn't tell us, they just didn't know. Um, and luckily one of his friends who had been with him phoned uh, and spoke to Michael that evening. And I then spoke to him on the phone and got a bit, a bit more detail mm -hmm. about what happened. Like they had essentially woken up and found him dead in his bed. And you just go into, I mean, when you're describing it now, does it still feel, does it feel real? No, <laughs> it doesn't, it, you know, it's a, it's, it's a strange feeling because you know it's real. Yeah. And you've lived through the grief and you live with grief. But sometimes it, it you know, you think, oh, this isn't true. Uh -huh. You know, it's actually, you know, something will happen something will happen and, and this, you know, I'll, I'll wake up, mm -hmm. you know, a bit like uh, the scene from Dallas, do you know when they wake yeah. up and Bobby's in the shower? Yeah. Like that, that's it, that's it thing that, that there's, there's is still a sense of unreality about it at times, uh -huh. but at other times it's extremely real and extremely, extremely raw yeah. and very difficult to deal with. Uh, what, what have you, what do you think has helped you not get over this, but get through. This. Get through. Um, Paul and the boys. Yeah. Really, Paul and the boys primarily. Uh, I think we said that Paul said to me about two weeks in. He said, "You know, when when you've needed held up, I've held you up, and when I've needed held up, you've held me up, and we just we just really supported each other as much as we could." Yeah. I was probably from from that first night when we found out Charlie had died. Um, I remember thinking to myself, right, you've got two sons and they've got to have life and this can't define their life. I mean, they're, they're always going to have lost a brother, mm -hmm. but this can't stop them from living. They've got futures in front of them. Um, and so I was really determined to, and still am determined to make sure that they have as good a life as they can have mm -hmm. without him being in it, mm -hmm. do you know? Because that's not fair that their life ended then. Mm -hmm. Mine can, mm -hmm. but not theirs. What could you draw on knowing what could happen to your mental health when you're coping with something so awful like that? That's that's a really difficult one because I, I think I just lived in the moment. I didn't think too far ahead. I mean, when you, there were hours that felt like days and there were other hours that you look at the clock and it's two o'clock and then the next thing you look at the clock and you where did those three hours go? Um, so that was, I, I, I just existed, to be honest. I, I wasn't really aware of, a, of, of trying to manage emotions. It was just trying to deal with what I had to deal with in the here and now. And my initial thing at that point in time was to get home. That was, that was my focus. And then when we got home, we then had to on a funeral um, and part of that was we wanted to bring him home so we brought him home um, and there's I suppose this, in the circularity of, of Charlie's life the, the day that we brought him home and we closed his coffin was his 21st birthday so the first day I saw him was the 9th of August and the last day that I saw him was the 9th of August um, and that was again you know I'm talking about it now like articulate the words but the but the emotions behind that are still so 
bro. Were you angry with him? No. No, I was never angry with him. No, it's, it's the, the it's the what ifs. It's the yeah. what ifs. What if something had happened differently? What if he, he hadn't gone to Amsterdam? What if I don't know? He, like there's there's just that's that's the that is difficult, and I try not to dwell on that mm -hmm. because it doesn't. I'm not saying that I don't at times, but it, it doesn't. It doesn't actually fulfil anything. Yeah. It, it doesn't make it any different, and we we'll talk about it for a while, but it's yeah. I mean, it's, it's pr I'm, I'm not angry. I'm sad. Yeah. Uh huh. I'm sad. And and you have to accept it. Yeah. And on so, on some levels, yeah. On some levels, I have, and on a lot of levels, I haven't. And that's that's just. I mean, I miss them so much. Yeah. And I don't think that'll ever go away. Probably not. So it just means that there's going to be a pain. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, it, like you say, it's every, it's every mother's worst nightmare. Yeah. And I, I've, a friend of mine, one, one of my staff, she's a friend to her her friend the week before had lost her daughter suddenly, just collapsed. Uh -huh. One of these you know, sort of like congenital cardiac yeah. things that, that, that's not so upstairs. Um, and I said to her the day before, I was like, oh, I don't know how, I don't know how she's coping, I don't know how she's coping, I mean, how, how do you deal with that? I don't think I can ever deal with that. And 24 hours later, I was dealing with it, and you don't know, you don't know, and her strength's probably the wrong, the wrong word, it's, it's, it's like survival, mm -hmm. even at a time when you really don't want to survive, you just, yeah. but you, somehow you get through it, um, and you have, I've got Paul and I've got the boys and I need to I need to keep going for them. Well that's what I was going to say, <laughs> if you didn't, I mean, there must be points where you just think I would, I would prefer not to be here or to experience this or to be thinking this. I read in the papers probably about six months ago, it's a case down in Manchester I think it was, and it was a woman whose his house had uh, been victim of arson, it was an arson attack and her four kids died. And the week after the sentencing, she it didn't say, but she killed herself. She killed herself. Yeah. Um, and you just think, yeah, you can relate. You can relate to that. You really can relate to that. Yeah. I'm, I, I was never suicidal. No. I, I never thought about, about yeah. killing myself. But if I hadn't woken up in the morning, do you know, it wouldn't have, you know, it's that sort of passive, like, okay. But again, I've got, I have reasons to, to go on, I have reasons to go on, and, yeah. and I know that um, my other kids will, you know, will have lives and will, will develop and will do things and, and, and bring some joy back into life, yeah. do you know? Is that part of, if you like, the whole kind of mental health story as well, the people, there are things that you have to live with. Mm -hmm. There is resilience that you don't even know you've got until you've got to deal with it. Absolutely, and I look back and I think, my God, I had a charmed life and I just didn't appreciate it because you, you just, you know, yeah. you just don't, you live, it's not that you don't appreciate things, but it puts a whole new perspective onto, onto everything and, and, and the, the plans, whether 
consciously you have or unconsciously of how you think life's going to play out. Mm -hmm. Do you know that just all of a sudden one part of that has ended? I think the experience of working on this particular magazine and focusing on mental health and in particular that interview with Claire has been that the experience of lockdown has had quite a profound effect on us all and that perhaps we cherish life and loved ones all a bit more and hopefully we'll all look after each other all a bit more. Okay, so it feels like... Um... Quite a lot of our show this week really has been a rant, but Mandy, this is the part where you give us 60 seconds of your um, unfiltered opinion. Have you got something for us? Well, have I got something for you? I mean, actually, I, you know, one of the things that Claire and I discussed in that previous interview uh, early on, which I haven't included in the, in the piece, was about the menopause and about how... We're talking more about the menopause now and we're understanding some of the issues that that creates for women and perhaps also allows women to have more empathy, if you like, about how we are often all on a bit of an edge and we could see how easily it would be to fall over the other side. Mm. Well, actually, I've been thrown over the other side by a press release that came in this morning that, re that reveals it's not just women that suffer with the menopause. Oh, Oh, no, no, no. Oh, right, it's, it's called the manopause. And more than three quarters of males surveyed for this piece revealed that their partner is more moody than she used to be, while 40% say she always seems a bit tired. And, and poor men, that means that they're actually really suffering through this menopause. Well, do you know what? If you want to appropriate my menopause, take it away, men, because you're very, very welcome. But just just to be clear here, so they're they're not actually they're not saying that they get any physical symptoms. They're they're the menopause is basically just that you know someone who's having a menopause. Yeah, they suffer from the symptoms of the menopause too because they're having to deal with their partner's temper, mood, her swings of mood, her lack of sex interest. Oh, it's hard for them, isn't it? So you're, you're basically denying that's real. That seems very unfair to me. Are you trying to say there's – what about the liamopause? I tell you what, Liam, you can tell that you're not in the same office as me right now, can't you? Yeah, I actually quite like this podcast. It's like baiting you from a distance. As if I've ever had a mood swing because of the menopause. <laughs> well, so what's, what's the plan then, Mandy? I don't know, because as I said in our last broadcast, my HRT is now under threat with shortages. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's just a worry. But actually, do you know, I've got another rant as well, Liam. All right. You didn't even have this before we started the podcast. You've just thought of this in the first in the well, course of your first rant. One of the symptoms of the menopause is you're, you're allowed to just talk about whatever you like and you're allowed to switch the subject. And if you want to object to that, I would just call it sexist. Anyway, getting on to sexism, um, so lockdown has been restricted uh, in some manner or other. So it seems that in Scotland, we can have a barbecue outside in the front, perhaps, of our garden with another household. But you certainly wouldn't be allowed to use their toilet, which has led us to a whole load of discussion about what women in particular should do if they're socialising with another household outside um, and should they pee outside or not? I think now, there's... Sorry, go on. 
Oh, I've put that question to the First Minister on Twitter, but I haven't yet heard back. She, she is busy, Mandy. <laughs> I know, but I'm planning to see my mother. And yeah. I'm just worried. I mean, I don't think my mum's the kind of woman that would be happy if I um, took a quick wee outside her garden. What about like a kind of classy shower curtain? Well, actually, I was thinking of making one of those cuddle curtains out of a shower curtain so that I could give my mum a hug, but yeah. I've just not got round to it yet. Okay. I was actually, it does actually have pretty big implications for architects, I would have thought, because if you're designing a house now, I'm going to start taking all this stuff into account. I mean, it's worth mentioning I'm not an architect, uh, nor have I ever been one. But you might want to start... a woman. <laughs> I've never been a female architect, certainly. <laughs> uh... I mean, you know, you could develop tunnels to get to back gardens because, I mean, a lot of people don't have front gardens. Well, a lot of people don't have gardens. I mean, I don't have a garden, for example, but I do have a park. It's pretty good. Yeah. But but would you pee in the park? You see, I, mm. the men in my family seem to have taken pleasure in peeing in the garden <laughs> but well before a pandemic. I mean, to be, I'm a respected political journalist, Mandy. I don't go around peeing in parks. <laughs> You told me earlier that you were not a respected political journalist. No, I, I said I wasn't a good political journalist. <laughs> and, and I did suggest that wasn't a good thing to say to your boss. Yes, yes. Yeah, well, Maybe that's a good point to finish the podcast, Liam. It sounds like politicians should act. Yeah, I think I've got a P45 to go and write. <laughs> <laughs> so they say a week is a long time in politics, and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's politically speaking podcast i hope we've enlightened and entertained and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics remember you know a podcast that can help them with that if you enjoyed this episode of politically speaking from hollywood magazine and the chat between liam and i remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too we're available on apple podcasts spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts also remember to check out our fortnightly release of Hollywood magazine available in print or online at hollywood.com. Bye for now.